Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. If you are new to our services, we just want to thank you for uh, just honoring us with an opportunity to speak into your life. And just want to say right up front that we just closed out uh, our series in the gospel uh, or in the first chapter of the gospel of John. And we kind of are journeying through the gospel of John. We're going to try to hit everything in every passage and every verse. It might take us a little time to get there, but the first chapter has been great unpacking that. And now we're starting our second series in the Gospel of John. And we're going to cover a little more chapters than just one this time. We're going to cover chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. And, and, and what we're doing is we're packaging these three chapters because there's something really significant and, and important and unique about these chapters in John's Gospel. You see, in these chapters, we're, we're titling this as Jesus the Revolutionary. The revolutionary. What, what we mean by that is not that Jesus is a political revolutionary, is that, that Jesus, to the perception and the kind of anticipation of what people were expecting from Jesus, he's revolutionary. It's fair to say that, that Jesus blindsided really the first century world. What they were expecting he would be, what they were in some sense hoping he would be, the kind of box they had in their mind to fit Jesus in, will just kind of blow up. It'll just, it'll just be wrecked. It'll be ruined. Jesus really blindsides the first century world when it comes to their expectations. And Jesus has these very uncomfortable encounters with the religious, the, the non-religious, and even with his family. And that's exactly where we're going to start. And I think what you're going to see is as we walk through these chapters, you might find that that Jesus is a little disruptive to your understanding of who he is. And you may have to kind of reevaluate what you think of when it comes to following Jesus. And this first interaction, this first encounter, kind of this first revolutionary interaction is with Jesus and his family, specifically Jesus and his mother. And I think this encounter is specifically very relevant to what we're going on, uh, what's going on right now in our nation as we are sitting in, in racial tension, as, as we are feeling kind of just a, a tear inside of us, just deep inside of us that, that we are, are not treating each other as we should. Those that look different than us are not getting the same amount of love that we would give maybe to somebody who does look like us. So Jesus has this encounter with his mom and, and really what he does, and let me explain how I think it's so specific because I think many of us are, are feeling that the, the lines are being drawn, if you will. The, the, the teams are forming, right? That you can almost feel the division, ironically, in pursuits of unity. And you can feel that people are starting to choose their side and they're, they're asking the question, you know, what, what hashtag should I use and what statement should I make and, and who should I align myself with? Who should I follow? What movement should I support? What political party should I vote for? And as we're getting to those uh, questions and getting to those answers, I, I get a little, well, a little nervous. Nervous because, well, I'm excited that, that we're learning. And I, I think we're in that kind of collective learning that we're, we're listening to friends and family members who, who, who have a different ethnicity than us. And, and we're reading blogs and we're re- listening to, to podcasts and reading articles and maybe even reading books and having wonderful conversations. And we have this kind of collective learning experience as a nation and even broader than that, as a globe, which is exciting. 
Because learning and listening listening and, and gaining empathy for somebody who doesn't necessarily look like you is important. Because in order for this world to get better, in order for us to get better, we need to, to listen and we need to learn. But the next step is the dangerous one. After we listen and we learn and we gather information, we have to take a step. We have to be courageous and step towards change, towards progress, to be better ourselves and to be better as a, as a nation, to be better as a world. And here's what I'm afraid of. As many of us are in that kind of learning phase right now, in that listening phase right now, and as we're starting to step toward the action, I'm afraid we're missing a very crucial question. More important than what hashtag will you use? More important than how you're going to vote? More important than what statement you're going to make on social media? More important than what political party or movement you're going to align yourself with? There's a crucial question we must, must ask ourselves, and that's this. Are we following Jesus first? Are we following Jesus first? See, because here's what I'm afraid of. We're going to step. We're going to make maybe a good step. And we're going to move forward, and then we're going to ask Jesus, hey, follow me. And that's a problem. And that's a big problem. And no matter how good that first step is, it will inevitably lead to failure. We must follow Jesus first. Jesus is not one that we invite into a path that we've already chosen. And Jesus is not okay with us leading him. And Jesus will make this very clear in John chapter 2 in his kind of revolutionary encounter with his mother. Let, let, let me show you this in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And let me just kind of summarize the interaction that's going to happen kind of with our big idea this morning. And, and this is the point that I think that Jesus is trying to convey to his mother, and he's going to have to broaden that out and convey it to his family. But even broader than that, he needs to convey it to us. And I think especially to us right now in the position that we're in. The big idea is this. Jesus doesn't follow us. Jesus doesn't follow us. Jesus is not okay with being in the passenger seat. Jesus is not okay with being in the back seat. Jesus is not okay with being your co-pilot. It's not that we choose a path and ask Jesus to bless it later. It's not that we lead out and he follows. It's not that we're Han Solo and Jesus is Chewbacca. That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't follow us. We follow Jesus. And let me show you this very abrupt and I would say even confrontational rebuke that Jesus has to have with his mother because she is trying to lead him. And he is not okay with that. Jesus does not follow us. Let's jump right into the passage. Let me show you how I think this is the main idea of John, our author. This is verse 1 of John chapter 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, the mother of Jesus being Mary. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
Okay, let's just set up a little uh, uh, background here. Okay, first we're introduced that there is a wedding that is happening in the city of Cana in Galilee. And now the mother of Jesus is there, but also Jesus is there, and it says his disciples. Now, who are the disciples that are there? It's probably only a group of five. Uh, the, the group of 12 that we're normally accustomed to, they don't uh, show up in John's gospel till chapter 6. So, so far, what we could gather from what we've read in, in, our, in our passages in, in the first chapter of the gospel of John, we, we would probably have Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, and an unnamed disciple. So he, we probably have five disciples. Now, it seems a little bit odd that Jesus gets an invite, and, and instead of getting like a plus one, Jesus gets a plus five. Okay? Well, I think that's a clue to this wedding or must be hosted by somebody who's a relative of Jesus. The bride and the groom maybe are related to Jesus or very close friends of the family. This is why Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are allowed to get in. Jesus is not crashing the party. The disciples aren't crashing the party. They are invited guests probably because Jesus and Mary are very familiar with this family. So they go in and Mary feels the stress now that, that something has gone wrong. The, the wine has run out. Now this would be a big deal in the first century world. See, in the first century world, weddings were, were a, a bigger festival, if you could imagine, than even what we experience now. Even though weddings are, are skyrocketing when it comes to their costs, at least post or pre-COVID, right? But, but in the first century world, it was a... It was a a, a, almost a, a festival of the whole entire town. These wedding feasts essentially would last like a week, sometimes even two. And, and people would come and they would bring their gifts and it was on the groom and his family to host the entire party. And, and their goal in the Jewish custom was to make sure that food never ran out. There were supposed to be leftovers. Imagine feeding your, not just your wedding party, but everybody you invited to your wedding, feeding them for a week. That's a big bill right there. And unless you're feeding everybody like jack-in-the-box tacos, which would be gross, right? you you got to think, this is, there's a huge financial strain right now. And we don't know what day we're in. We don't. It feels like it's very early based on just the movement of the text. And what's happened is something very shameful has happened. The wine has run out. Now, we may feel like, okay, big deal, so they're just going to switch to something else. They're going to offer something else. It's not a big deal. But in the first century world, it was a big deal. In the, in the Jewish mindset, they're, they're a, what's called a shame culture. Right? So in a shame culture, if you were to, to do an act, it would not only shame you, you would wear that, but it, it would wear on your family. So to not be a, a good host was a very shameful thing. You would be uh, uh, just ridiculed, not only in the present, but that would stick with you. As you're in the village and your family runs around, right? Your kids are running around, your wife is going to the market or whatever. You would be known as that guy who did not provide a great wedding feast. You could take it even further than that. We actually have documentation in the ancient world of people facing legal ramifications for not hosting the party well. Now, I know many of you have regrettable experiences with your wedding. Maybe you had a bad DJ or a bad photographer, right? But then, you know, you, you maybe work something out with the contract. This was different. You, the, the, the family of the bride could actually take the groom and his family to court. And he could face a, a legal consequence. 
So we're not just talking about shame. We're talking about legal consequence. One rabbi said, as he's listing out uh, what's considered to be uh, theft, for somebody to be uh, categorized as a thief, that person would be somebody who hosted a party and didn't make enough supplies for the entire party. So this is a big deal. And Mary, probably because of the close connection, feels the weight of the embarrassment. Maybe she's worried about legal trouble. So she goes to her oldest son. She goes to Jesus and she said, they're out of wine. They're out of wine. What are we going to do? Now, what is she expecting? Is she expecting Jesus? Is Jesus a bartender? Right? Does Jesus work at BevMo? Why is she going to him? And saying, we're out of wine. Now, just on a casual reading of what would happen in kind of maybe a first century family at this time. Jesus is the oldest, so he, is, he has a higher responsibility in the family. And I think it's fair to say that we can assume that Joseph at this point has passed on. The Gospels only give us one story of jo- Joseph later on in the life of Jesus. And that's when Jesus is only 12 years old. And then from there, he kind of... Uh, Well, he's gone. He just completely disappears. And we have no idea what happened to him. And we're not really told. We are told that Jesus is the son of a carpenter. But then we're also told later in the Gospels that Jesus is the carpenter. So what's probably happening, and I think it's fair to guess, at this point in kind of the start of Jesus' ministry, when he's in his 30s, that Joseph has already passed. His mom is a widow. She has leaned on her eldest son to be very resourceful. To be a provider. So she's in trouble. She feels the weight of it. She feels the embarrassment. She feels maybe the legal problem. And so she goes to her son and she thinks, I've got a plan. I want you to follow me. I got an idea. I'm going to fix the problem. Jesus, be my co-pilot. Jesus, back me up on this plan. She feels some sense of, um, I don't want to say control, but she feels some sense of authority. She's assuming that she has some leverage on Jesus. I mean, she did give birth to him. She uh, was there to nurse him. She caught him as he was falling when he was learning to walk as a child. So I think what she feels right now is she has a sense of, of, of honor in the eyes of Jesus. And so she can assume that he is going to follow along with her plan. Jesus, follow me in this. Now, why is she going to Jesus with this? I think it's more than just his resourcefulness. More than he's just an uh, an able-bodied thinker and a man of great resources. I think she's expecting something special. Now, in John's gospel, this is the first miracle that's recorded. It says later in our text that it is the first miracle of Jesus. So she doesn't have kind of that understanding that Jesus performed the miraculous so she can go back on that, look at that resume and say, well, that's what I'm expecting. But I still think, even though this is Jesus' first miracle and she's never seen another miracle, I think she is anticipating that Jesus would do something very special. Why is that? Well, just go back in the other Gospels. Mary knows from the very beginning that Jesus is special. She didn't take a pregnancy test and then read it and see two lines or one line. That, that's not what, that was not her experience. An angel, a heavenly creature, came down and announced to her, you are going to be with child. 
and spoke greatly about this child, how this child would be Messiah, the hero that was promised in the Old Testament. And she conceived this child while she was a virgin. She already knows that Jesus is special. She remembers all of these things. So I think she is anticipating Jesus is going to do something to show off his miraculous power. I've been waiting for years, decades even, to get to this point. So I think she's nudging Jesus here, maybe being a little pushy and saying, Jesus, follow me in this. This is the right thing to do. This is a great hour to display your power. But Jesus will not be led. Jesus is not comfortable being the passenger. He's not going to deny the problem. We're going to see that. He's not going to deny that there needs to be a step to a solution. But he's not going to be led. He's not comfortable being in the passenger seat. He's not comfortable being in the back seat. And he very abruptly makes that clear to his mother. He's going to say, in a sense, that big idea, Jesus doesn't follow us. Right? I don't follow you. You follow me. Right? Let, let me show you this. Let's pick back up. We're halfway through verse 3. Well, I'll read all of verse 3. When the wine ran out, a big problem. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman. What does this have to do with me? Now, these are strong words. Now, we want to feel the response from Jesus here correctly. As 21st century readers, right, we immediately get hit with that first word, woman. And it feels awkward. It feels offensive. It just, it's chauvinistic. Right? Jesus is just being rude. He's being obnoxious. He's being disrespectful. But that's not fair. That's not fair because this phrase, this term, is a term of actual affection. It was an appropriate way to speak to somebody. A good example of this is later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, when Jesus is dying on the cross... He kind of fulfills the role of the oldest son and he makes provision for his mother that she would be cared for by a disciple. And he uses this same word, woman. So this is a term of affection. Jesus is not being rude, obnoxious, or, or, or vulgar here. He's not doing that. But even though this term is a tender term, it's a kind term, it is very peculiar to use it when you're addressing your mother. You can feel it even in the English, not even understanding the background of the Greek language. But we never find this being addressed from a son to a mom, which makes sense. Right? The term is woman, not mother. So we feel it. Jesus didn't address her as mom. Now is not the time. He said, woman. With, with, again, it's tender, it's affectionate. Maybe ma'am would be a good English kind of equivalent. Ma'am. Which is fine if you're opening the door, maybe, for somebody. Or if you're a waiter and you're greeting somebody at a table to say ma'am. That's very cordial and polite. But you don't call your mom, your mother, ma'am. 
And I think she feels it. She knows it. Jesus is being intentional here with his word choice. It's the next phrase that's even a bigger clue here that Jesus is correcting his mom. He's being kind. He's being tender. But he is correcting her. He says these words. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Every time this phrase is used in the scriptures, every time in the New Testament, and every time in the Old Testament when it was translated later into Greek, every time this phrase, this Greek phrase is used, Old and New Testament, it's always a rebuke. It's always a correction. It always has some teeth to it. And this is exactly how Jesus means it. What does this have to do with me? Why bring this to me? This is not my concern. Now, Jesus, in the next phrase, is going to explain that a little bit further. Why does Jesus address his mother in this way? Why so abrupt? Why this correction? Why this rebuke? Look what Jesus says. My hour has not yet come. Now, could we say, okay, maybe this is what's happening. Is Jesus is not in charge of the beverages. That's not Jesus' uh, responsibility, right? Even though he knows this family. Maybe Jesus is in charge of the dessert. Right? And so she's coming up and saying, hey, you, you got to do something about this wine. And Jesus says, hey, I, I, don't, I baked a seven-layer cake. Right? My time has not yet come. It's not time to cut the cake. They haven't done the father-daughter dance. They haven't, right? He just gives all this list of all this stuff that's got to come prior. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We can't lose this phrase, my hour has not yet come. That term right there is a very favorite term that John highlights on the lips of Jesus. My hour. Hour has not yet come. That phrase is used nine times in the Gospel of John. My hour. Every time Jesus uses that term, he's referring to, to an event, to a moment. And that moment is his death his re- and his resurrection. His hour, the, mo- the reason he came, the reason he was born. He was sent here by the Father to accomplish a mission. And that mission was to die and to rise again. And that hour is his concern. That is his North Pole. That's where he's headed. His compass is directed only there. And nothing can disrupt that plan. Nothing can move that course of action. He's going to go there. And he's basically saying to his mother, Mom... Or sorry, woman, ma'am, I don't follow you. I follow my Father's will. I have a mission to complete. And you cannot move me away from that magnetic north. I will only fix my eyes in that direction. And so your request your plan that you want me to bless, your course of action that you want me now to be invited into is not something that I'm going to do because I will not be distracted from my mission. It's interesting how Jesus' family ran into this problem several times with Jesus. The only other time we see Mary mentioned while Jesus is, 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 is performing his public ministry is in the Gospel of Matthew and in Matthew chapter 12, look at how the same lesson has to be learned here. That, that every time, and it's only this occasion and, and the one we're going to read here, where Mary is mentioned while Jesus is doing his public ministry, 
that Jesus has to mention a distance that's between him and his family, him and his mother. He's always redefining things. Look at this in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, his brothers, stood out asking to speak to him. They want to cut in line. Right? Hey, we're family. We're allowed to come in. Right? They're speaking, I guess, maybe Jesus had, you know, a bouncer or something like that. Right? The biggest guy in Nazareth, he, he had him. And so they want him to move kind of the, 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 the rope there, the, you know, the red velvet rope, move it and allow them to come in. And Jesus will not give them priority because they're family. Because to him, family ties aren't as important as this family tie. Between him and his father. Look at how Jesus, again, has to redefine for his family his relation to them. Verse 48. But he replied to the men who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Who's my family? Verse 49. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is essentially saying to Mary, you are my disciple before you are my mother. You follow me before you ever are my mother. It's not to say that there's not an important relationship between Jesus and his earthly mother. It's not to say that. He's not throwing that away. But he has a higher agenda. He will not be known as the son of Mary, but the son of man. That's his title for himself. How he wanted to be known. That he is the son of man. The one that was spoken about in Daniel chapter 7. The one that comes with authority and comes with power and brings a kingdom that lasts forever. This is how he will be known. Not the son of Mary, but the son of man. And he has to put that out in front of his mother and tell her, I don't follow you. You follow me. Same thing happens again in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7. This time it's with his brothers. And look at how the tone is very similar to Mary's tone in chapter 2. This is chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. I'm going to read verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Hey, we've got a plan for you, Jesus. We know public relations. We know how to communicate. We know media, right? We know how to get you more followers. We know how to get you trending, Jesus. Would you follow our plan? Jesus, Follow us. And Jesus rebukes them and tells them, my hour, my time has not come. Your time is always, but not my time. Again, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, I don't follow you. I don't follow you. You follow me. I think it's very important that we learn this lesson right now. Right now as a people, right now as followers of Jesus Christ. I'm afraid 
that as we appraise the problems in our nation and as we seek to take action, we are viewing things as Republicans, as Democrats, as Libertarians. And we are stepping forward first as asking ourselves, what is the Republican response? Or what is the Democratic response? Or what is the Libertarian response? Or whatever alignment you want to say, whatever political party you want to align yourself to, if there's another one or movement or whatever, all of these things we are asking ourselves. And I think we are missing something very, very big here. There's a much bigger question. And that is, are we first following Jesus because Jesus has a movement that started before the Republican Party before the Democratic Party before the Libertarian Party before America there was a mission that Jesus set out to do to seek and to save the lost to go to his hour to go to that moment to climb up Calvary to bear our sins to die and rise again, to offer us the gift of eternal life, to commission us to preach the gospel to every creature, to build a church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And if we don't answer that question first, as we assess the problem, if we don't first say, am I following Jesus first? Or am I stepping out and asking him to bless my path? to bless my course of action? Are we acting very much like Mary? Are we assuming that Jesus is on our side before we ask him, where should we step? And if we don't ask ourselves that question, I'm afraid that we will step into ruin. When you first follow Jesus, when you first admit, I am not here to follow my plan, but here to follow his plan. I'm not here to take the lead, but I'm here to be led. When you do that, everything works out better. Lives literally are changed. People are better. The world is better. Let me just show you this. I know it's, it's, a, it's a simple miracle, right? We're not, we're not talking about the, the backdrop of racial uh, uh, attention that we're experiencing. That's true. The, the problem is not as big. Yes, there are legal ramifications. There are social ramifications. There's shame involved, right? Our problem is, is a little deeper. But notice when Mary submits to Jesus and says, you're the pilot. I'm the co-pilot. I'll go in the back seat. I'll step back. I'll follow you. And she does that. She responds to Jesus' correction and submits to his leadership. And when she does, everything works out better. Lives are truly changed. Let me just show you this. Let me show you the kind of trickle-down effect of when she decided to follow Jesus and not try to lead Jesus. Let's go back. We're in verse 4. It says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love this. 
I love this. I, I don't think she's being a caterer here. I think this is faith. She knows the problem is big. She knows Jesus is special. That's why she came to him. Not just because he was resourceful or that he was the oldest. She had nobody else. It's true that he was those things. But she knew that he was special, that he was different. So she submits to him and she looks to the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. She doesn't take this rebuke or correction from Jesus as a denial of her request. And neither should we. Neither should we. There are actions that we need to take. There are steps that we need to do. Things that we need to get better at as individuals and as a society. And we will be taking some steps. And I pray that those are wise steps and great steps and those steps take us forward. But we have to see first and foremost, asking that question of Jesus, where are you leading? Is better than saying, Jesus, follow us as we lead. She does that. She submits to Jesus and says, Jesus, whatever your plan is, I'm behind that. I'm going to back that. She displays faith. And then look at this. She causes faith to form in others. Remarkable. Look at verse 6. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Why are all these details mentioned? Right? You have six stone jars. Stone jars because they were spiritually, in a sense, sanitized. They didn't take on ritual impurity, so they were, they were clean. There's six of them. They hold 20 to 30 gallons, so average it out to 20 gallons. So 20 gal- 25 gallons, average it out, six gallons. So we're talking about 150 gallons of water. Why is that mentioned? It's because the, John is mentioning that detail because he wants us to see the remarkable nature of what Jesus is about to do. That Jesus is about to change 150 gallons of water into 150 gallons of wine. This isn't a parlor trick. He doesn't change one glass. Right? He changes everything. 150 gallons of wine. It says in verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They're already empty because they've already been used for the rite of purification, the washing of hands. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, which would be like the head waiter. He would be like the caterer at at our weddings. right? This guy is in charge of making sure everything is going well. All the details are happening. All the hot food is going out. You know, all the different things are set up. That's his job. So they bring this water, which is going to be transformed into wine, to the master of the feast. Look again, halfway through verse 8. It says, now draw some of the water and take it to the master of the feast. Now look at these four words. So they took it. We could read those really fast, but realize what's happening here. Again, I try to convey to you the severity of the problem happening for them in this wedding. Shame is going to happen. This man is going to be embarrassed. There could be legal ramifications. And these guys essentially are going to be accomplices to the crime. They're told by Jesus, I want you to take this water and bring it to that guy. Bring it to the head waiter 
If they bring water to him when he's expecting wine and he's got this big party to happen, he's worried that he's going to get punished and that's just going to trickle down to them. He's not going to find this as funny. This is going to bring shame, maybe legal action. And so the servants doing this, I think, is actually another display of faith. I think Mary shows faith. I think these servants show faith. Again, the trickle-down effect. She makes the right choice, and what happens? Everything works out better. Look as the story unfolds. We're in verse 9. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, notice this note. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Okay, stop there. It says the servants who had drawn what? The water. It doesn't say the servants who had drawn the wine. I think John is hinting at here. The miracle did not take place inside those big stone jars. When they took out that water, it still was water. And maybe as they were journeying to the master of the feast, the head waiter, if you will, that's when they saw it return to wine. Again, there's a great step of faith here that these servants are taking. And it all started, why? Because Mary decided to follow Jesus and not lead Jesus. But look again, the trickle-down effect happens again. It says, the master of the feast, I'm in verse 9, called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus has saved the day, saved this family from shame, from legal ramifications, and, and he has done it in an extravagant way. He's brought better wine and 150 gallons of it. Pretty remarkable. Now look at this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. And he manifests his glory and his disciples believed in him. It says Jesus manifests his glory. It's a big word there, glory. It means more than just brightness or, you know, shining halos or something like that as we think of it in the 21st century world. Right? This is a deep, strong, heavy, weighty, concrete term in the Old Testament. When God displays his power, when he, when he shook Mount Sinai and he spoke the, the Ten Commandments in thunder and in lightning, when he, when he uh, broke out in plagues against the Egyptians, right? These, these big displays of power and might, visible manifestations of glory, power, and authority that caused people around them to shake. This is what's being used here. Jesus displayed his extravagant power. His glory was shown. And what word is then used next? And his disciples believed in him. So interesting. Again, these five disciples, we know that Nathan probably already believes. Nathan already said to Jesus, we looked at this last week, that he is the son of God and the king of Israel. But now we have more. So how many of the disciples maybe initially thought that Jesus was at least something they should be curious about? But now they have taken a step of belief. Think about that. Mary decides to follow Jesus' lead and not lead Jesus. And then we see servants display faith. And then we see the disciples' faith grow. The disciples that, that will be the apostles that build the foundation of the church. People who will write the scriptures. 
who will face persecution, yet will build the church who would be martyred. The first step of these great men being built, these pillars of the church, happened because Mary decided to be led by Jesus and not try to lead Jesus. There's a great lesson to be learned here for us. Jesus doesn't follow us. We follow Jesus. Again, I'm excited. Excited about the potential of this kind of collective uh, learning experience. I know you have had conversations with friends and family members of different ethnicities. I know personally I have enjoyed and learned much from those interactions that I've had personally. I'm sure you're reading books and and articles and listening to podcasts and all these different things. And these these are great. And I know you're asking yourself those questions of, of where do I align myself? Can I support this movement? Should I support this movement? The tension between what hashtag is appropriate. Right? Maybe you're thinking even a little bit more in the future, who am I going to vote for? Right? And you need to answer all of those questions. But there's that first question you must ask and answer. Am I following Jesus first? Am I approaching this problem as a follower of Jesus and not a member of a certain ethnicity? Am I following Jesus first or am I responding to this situation according to my political affiliation? Am am I responding to this problem as a follower of Jesus or am I responding to this problem as I know my friends and family will find more acceptable? I have to say as encouraged... I am at the learning and listening experiences that I'm hearing about and the empathy that is being gained. I'm also incredibly discouraged because I've seen some of the steps. I've seen some of the um, movement, action. And honestly, I think it is foolish, shameful, hurting the name of Jesus. I've been so disappointed as a follower of Jesus to the irresponsible, unloving, unkind, unproductive posts I see on social media. I think we're we're causing Jesus to weep and not smile. The opportunity is so incredibly huge, church. So incredibly huge. You got to feel it. I mean, you, you have to sense it, right? You have to feel the, the, the moment that is upon us as a society. I don't think there's been a greater moment for the church to speak into, for followers of Jesus Christ to speak into. I mean, I mean think about it. We're talking about a global pandemic that has literally shattered the economy of who knows how many nations, people are on the brink of, 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 of a mental health 
breakdown and crisis. Who knows the ramifications that we're going to face because of all of this? And we're not even out of it yet. And then you pile up on that, this, this civil rights global movement. We're not talking about what happens in, in the nation. We're talking about global demonstrations. Global demonstrations, however you want to appraise them and feel them out or everything. Like that. But we're talking there's a global movement right now. You can feel we are on the precipice, the edge of something either wonderfully great or wonderfully terrible. It's either a mountain or the abyss. And yet the countless amount of Christians that I have seen adopt this virtue, I need to speak loud, I need to speak fast, and I need to speak past anybody. Just put it out there. Unrestrained, unkind, unloving, rude, obstructive, right? And all that does is multiply your enemies and not educate your fellow man. I mean, think about your own personal experience. How many people have you seen on social media, whatever platform is your privilege and preference, how many people have you seen say, man, I am so convinced by the persuasive structure of your argument. I reconsider my position and I will concede to your point. You are a wiser person than me. My course of action in my life will now be different. I'm setting a new direction. Today is a new day. Have you ever seen that before? I'm sure it exists out there. I haven't seen it. We have a moment. Are we following Jesus first? Are we responding like a Republican first? Or a Democrat first? Or a Libertarian first? Are we responding like we feel a white man should respond? Are we following or leading, responding as a black man should? All these preconceived constructs. But they are not our deepest identity. Not as followers of Christ. Jesus will not be led. Jesus does not follow us. We follow him. And when we follow him, everything works better. Everything works out better. So I want to give you a practical step for you to take. I mean, really, really practical. Here's what I want you to do. This week, what I want you to do is I want you to join me. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not going to do. I want to ask you to to join me to do this to take a practical step of say, I'm going to let Jesus lead me and I'm not going to lead Jesus. I'm going to first and foremost let that question really penetrate my soul. Am I following Jesus first? So here's my practical step for you. My practical step is this. Starting tomorrow, Monday, read James. James is the brother of Jesus. By the Holy Spirit wrote the book of James in the New Testament. I want you to read the book of James one chapter every day before you ever post anything, before you ever read anything, before you ever listen to anything, before you turn on the news, you start that podcast, 
you watch that documentary, you speak to a friend, you have a conversation, let the word of God lead you one chapter a day. It's only five chapters, so you can even miss a day. But one chapter a day, starting on Monday. And here are the words that we're going to hear. Let's give you a preview. I'll let the word of God speak. We're going to hear words like this. James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. What a wonderful balance to be unstained from the world, to not uh, align ourselves with any movement that is not God-centered, is not Christ-centered. Don't be stained by the world, but visit widows and orphans in their affliction. What does that mean? Why does he choose those two categories? Is because in the first century world, those were the most disenfranchised people, the ones in the most danger, economically, socially. The ones who could be most victimized, the ones that were oppressed the most, the ones who had the hardest story, And he says, you want to know what pure religion is, undefiled before God? Love the disenfranchised. Love the disadvantaged. But keep yourself pure from the world and its movements. James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We're going to read this too on Tuesday. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not you should love those who look like yourself. You should love those or love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you pick one or the other, you give favor or privilege to one over the other. For any reason, you are committing a sin and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. On Wednesday, in James chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, we're going to read this. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining our whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. A 21st century interpretation of that Just replace tongue with thumbs. Your thumbs are a small thing, but what they post starts a fire that defiles your body, your life, and is set on fire by hell. That's James, the brother of Jesus, inspired by the word of God or by the Holy Spirit to write the word of God. That's not Paul Crandall. But that small tongue or those small thumbs set a fire. And I'm telling you right now, we are more on fire in our social media platforms than ever before. We're going to read on that same day on Wednesday, James chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For where jealous and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. When we're selfish, this is the world we create. But the wisdom from above, listen to this, is first pure, it is peaceable, it is gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
that phrase, open to reason. Wisdom doesn't know it all. Wisdom doesn't pretend to know it all. Wisdom listens. Wisdom listens. We want a harvest of righteousness. We must sow it in peace. Church family, let's pray that God would give us that righteousness. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful that you are tender and kind to us. Father, we hear your words. Christ, we hear your words echoed to our soul that first were delivered to your mother. Mom, I don't follow you. You follow me. Oh, Christ. May that weigh on us very heavily. That you are not here to take a back seat to our agenda, our political machine. Christ, you had a mission, an hour that you were looking toward. Your death and your resurrection, your exaltation. And Father, every follower of Jesus Christ has a mission, an hour, a time, a season. And Father, I'm afraid that we are stepping away from that direction. That our mission is to seek and to save that which is lost. To preach the gospel to every creature. And in every place, to build a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation to the glory of Christ. Holy Spirit, lead us away from our own movements and lead us first. Father, you see our problem and I know you want to solve it. Just as Christ, you saw your mother's problem and you solved it, but you did it your way. So Father, please, please, may we be able to stand before you and say, I responded first as a follower of Jesus. I did not fear men or reprisal. I didn't fear friends. I didn't fear family members. I didn't fear my party allegiances. I didn't fear what people who look like me are going to say about me if I try to think about other people who don't look like me. Father, tear away in our hearts the fear of man and put in us the fear of you. That we will be asked on judgment day, did we follow you first, Christ? And I pray, Father, that you would give us this moment and give us boldness and make us step forward in you so that everything will work out better. Be with us as we read your word this week. Impress it upon our hearts and change us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.